This week on Behind the Idea, we look at Teladoc, ticker symbol TDOC. One of the best lines I've heard from an investor in my time at Seeking Alpha goes something like this. When there are a lot of shorts in a name, I pay attention closely, because they're smart. And when I find out that they're wrong, I bet big against them. There are a lot of shorts in Teladoc who are skeptical about the company's profitability, growth trajectory, and even their ethics. Value Alpha takes the other side of the trade in a recent top idea, arguing the company has a long runway ahead of it. Is this a case where it's worth loading up? We discuss on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're looking at another battleground stock on the cutting edge of yet another new industry. Teladoc, ticker symbol TDOC. The telephonic medical company has long been in the sights of short sellers, but Seeking Alpha author Value Alpha recently took the other side of the trade, making the bull argument in a top idea for Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Value Alpha argues that Teladoc is grabbing market share in a nascent and growing industry and that concerns raised by short sellers in the past are immaterial. We break down whether this holds up on this week's Behind the Idea. Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work. We take articles from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem, as well as Joel Greenblatt books and activist letters, and try to break them down to understand the approach and how this can apply to our investing. That said, nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. Neither Mike nor I have any positions in Teladoc. And Behind the Idea is brought to you by Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Pro Plus gives you exclusive access to top ideas like these, as well as real-time alerts on some of the best articles from Seeking Alpha, like some of the short ideas on Teladoc. It helps you find the best of Seeking Alpha quickly and easily, so you can spend more time breaking down the analysis behind it and deciding how it applies to your investing. To try Pro Plus, go to SeekingAlpha.com slash Pro Plus where you can sign up for a monthly subscription or try an annual subscription that comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Check it out at SeekingAlpha.com slash P-R-O-P-L-U-S. That's Pro Plus. Mike. Daniel, yet another battleground in yet another nascent industry. I guess we we're sort of taking for granted the technological innovation that's happening below our very feet at this point. And I think maybe we should just take a minute here and appreciate how far our techno dystopia has taken us. And, you know, it's, this should be exciting. Let's be excited. It is exciting. It is exciting. We're talking about not having to go to the doctor, but instead going to the computer to talk to the doctor through the computer. At you least that's how I understand. To a doctor it. on the phone, <laughs> <laughs> but they can't see you. They the can't. Ho- they can't see you. You can send them a picture. I think that's they. I hope with the dermatology at least that they. I hope it's not just verbal descriptions. Anyway, Teladoc. So I want to just start quickly. Value Alpha makes the argument. Underlying argument, we'll, we'll go into more details, but is ultimately that Teladoc is going to be a market leader in a growing space, 
40% upside is available here. The stock has been public for about four to five years. 2015, it came public, sort of got off to a rocky start, but then I think through 2018, it had a strong bull rise, and then it's kind of been choppy for the last 12 to 14 months or so. I think where I start with this is that when you think about you're looking for articles to, or ideas to get excited about, companies to get excited about in the growth space, and it makes sense to me why this industry would be something unique. Whether or not we can get into competitive advantage and positioning everything else, but it does make sense to me that there's a macro trend here towards Oh, cutting out on trips to the doctor, let's say if you just have a cold or if you have things that you just are difficult to come in, you know, you the alternatives are doctors making house calls or home health care with a nurse or going into the doctor. And this seems potentially doing your medical consulting or your medical visits as much as you can through the telephone or through video calls or whatever else. It does seem like that would be a cost saver and potentially a more efficient model. So I guess there's that to me is what at the core of this, it seems to me like it's possible that a company or companies could do that. This does serve a real purpose. It does serve real value. So I guess I start there. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a strong case to be made that there are shifting consumer preferences around this. Just and it's sort of the trend that we've seen since the you know dot com initial dot com boom is an increasing faith in the ability to conduct business over the internet or via telecommunications. There was a time when people wouldn't put their credit card information anywhere, give it to anyone over the internet, uh, even big companies. And that has basically completely evaporated and sort of a logical next step is to increasingly trust your health information uh, and to transact uh, even your personal health and well-being over the Internet. That, to me, makes sense as a really strong uh, growth opportunity, whatever business can capture this increasing trust and increasing comfort with uh, conducting health business over the internet is going to do quite well, I think. In terms of the U.S. market, there's a bunch of other, you know, wherever we can find efficiencies in the complex sort of spider web of the healthcare system, there's a lot of room to profit from capturing those efficiencies and because of all the attenuated relationships between the recipients of services and the providers, there's a lot of sort of room to make a lot of money. So on the on the high level surface, I think you have and really what the core I think of the value alpha thesis is is that there's a large growth opportunity here and uh, the consumer trend is heading in the right direction. And on top of that, Teladoc seems to be the leader here with a substantial market share and a very aggressive sort of revenue growth strategy. 
I find both those aspects of the story to be pretty compelling. And I think it gets complicated when you look at the sort of mechanics of how Teladoc is executing on it. But in terms of the business being well positioned, I'm basically on board with that. So let's look at Teladoc's positioning specifically, because I think the author's argument is that they are the leader in the space, which seems plausible, and that they have still a significant growth opportunity. So the author shares based on their own work, as well as Teladoc's investor presentation, the fact that Teladoc has 70% market share. It's already acquired a few smaller niche players to help support its market share. It has, in theory, only achieved adoption, the author calculates, of 22% if you take the commercial market, 12% if you include the government market, and as listeners are sure to know, it sounds like those will combine in the near future. But so it's essentially, to me, this is essentially a TAM play of they have, their competitive advantage is not per se their software, even though the author argues it is highly scalable, it's really still just organizing calls. 15% of their calls are video. The rest are calling into a call center or calling through web or mobile. And so the argument is that they will have a strong connection to the physician networks, to insurers. Their customers are actually insurance companies who then offer the services to their end consumers, you and me. And so the argument is that their connections, their sort of intangible relationships with physicians, specialists, end consumers, providers, etc., is what is going to make Teladoc stand out. And then they are, in the meantime, both showing revenue growth and adjusted EBITDA margin growth. And so... You don't have to, before we get into the weeds, you don't have to see what the argument, the argument is essentially that they're going to continue to maintain market leading growth. They'll eventually, one way or the other, they'll figure it out on margins and then they have a exciting field and they have major leadership and they will maintain that and thus become profitable. So that's, that's, that's how I understood it. Yeah. And I would go one further. This isn't explicit, but I think it's a little bit implicit in the argument that the first level understanding of Teladoc is probably closer to the direct-to-consumer business, which is relatively small in terms of revenue versus these sort of platform presences with insurance providers. So a lot of people know Teladoc through, you know, advertising on podcasts or advertising on YouTube. And that's part of one of the legs of a recent bear thesis on Teladoc. But but basically, I think that there's an argument to be made here that the business is actually not that well understood in terms of its actual strengths, which are the ability to get on these large platforms that provide access to a lot of customers, as well as the physician network, which is probably only those two things may actually feed into each other. It's probably harder to get access to these large platforms if you don't have a strong physician network behind you to offer to the insurance providers. And it's probably 
also difficult to attract physicians onto your platform if you don't have a strong enough uh, network of potential customers on the other side. So I think in addition to that thesis of industry strength being relatively strong, I also think that there's maybe some grounds for a sort of market misperception of the business in terms of the illusion of it being this direct-to-consumer play when in fact it's more this, I forgot, he has a great like seven-letter abbreviation that's like B2C2, B2C <laughs> business, which uh, I think is closer to what it actually is. Yeah, I think it, I think it was B2B2C. So I guess I take that as helping businesses provide services to consumers. Yeah. How many B2s can you put in before you start to get nervous? I think B2B2C I'm comfortable with. I have to think that's about the, I think that's about the limit. I think same with, you know, DTC direct consumer. Like there's, you could probably do, you could, I think five characters, five B's, five characters, five characters total. And after that, you start to get into trouble. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. (laughs) Important Um, point. Yeah. Well, you know. Okay. So that's the high level thing. And there's not really that much else to discuss. Maybe we should just go through real quickly and just look at the assumptions that Value Alpha makes. So he assumes that subscriber growth declines somewhat, revenue per visit remains flat. So that's an important point, right? That Teladoc makes money in two separate ways, right? There's a subscription offering and then there's also a per visit offering. And the subscription offering is the major contributor to revenue and they collect those fees largely up front and no refunds for accruals. So that's a nice aspect of the business, right? And then you go through and like you said, margins start to rationalize in the coming years. And even though we're sort of at a cash burning, heavy, intense uh, investment stage of the business right now, uh, value Al- alpha goes out and sees a strong positive cash flow growth emerging and a strong valuation as a result. What do you think, Daniel? So I think the the model itself looks more or less plausible. I th- there's one thing I want to interrogate a little bit more with you as far as the company's p- positioning, but... I w- and I'll set that aside for a second, but the I find that the um, the model itself is plausible. I mean, I, I don't think the subscriber growth is that aggressive, as you pointed out. There's not a, there's some increase in utilization, paid visits. He, he, the author argues will go up uh, substantially, actually, but. Still, I'm okay with that as a way to tell the growth story because I think that's what's interesting to me here is how do you tell a growth story for a stock like this? And so that's plausible. There's some international growth. All I'm sure we could debate the revenue numbers here, but the revenue numbers here to me don't seem ridiculous and even the adjusted EBITDA which is which the author claims is only adjusted for stock based compensation which is its own issue but that's you know 20% adjusted EBITDA in 2023 
plausible. I think that's that's a plausible spot to be. What I think is more challenging about the model specifically is the final valuation. It's just taken from a terminal revenue model, which I'm not crazy about. I guess the argument you can make for it is that this will still be a growth company even in 2023. The total revenue growth is perceived to be 14% at that point. Margins, at this point, the model has adjusted EBITDA margins. And I'm looking at the bear case, actually, I should say. But the bull case, so if I scroll down to the bull case, the bull case is slightly more aggressive on adjusted EBITDA margins, more aggressive on revenue growth, I think basically driven by even more of a ramp in, well, there is some pricing there. So look, I think, you know, that's a bull case, but it's still, even the bull case, it still takes the revenue number from 2023 applies a multiple and then backs into that, if I'm understanding it correctly, backs into that to achieve a share price. And that to me is not super, that's, that's to me is the weakest part. Cause I, even if you're saying that it's going to be this great growth company, I think I prefer at that, if you're projecting the future, I prefer a little bit more of a profit oriented approach, whether it's cash flows or whatever else. And I don't, Unless I'm missing something big, I don't really see that this is a DCF or a exit multiple based on EBITDA or anything else. Well, we do, just to defend it a little bit. So he's modeling out positive adjusted EBITDA, which you could debate or not, but positive adjusted EBITDA margins starting in now and increasing over time. So I guess, and this is just sort of a very basic point, but whatever the multiple is on sales, the modeled out EBITDA, it has some margin to sales. And so you could just say, okay, six times sales and the EBITDA margin is 20%, then it's 30 times EBITDA. But I guess the point that you're making is just like, we need to see at some point some something a little bit more bottom line focused. And, you know, we, we want a path towards sort of cash flows and to focus on that from your perspective. I guess the sales multiple, you might argue, is sort of a more speculative way of looking at things because it's it's just so focused on the top line. Is that your issue with it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, I think let's lean on old friend, Professor DeMotor. And to me, that's a pricing mechanism more than a valuation mechanism. And and that's, I always, I was going to think about that as well, as far as mentions of the short interest. I think it's interesting with these stocks sometimes, the, the pricing game and are we dealing with trading sardines or are we dealing with eating sardines? And the question of like, this call is working so far. And also you could argue, look, there's a huge short position. And if Teladoc gets a couple quarters right, then the stock, like you can play that game. Then the stock moves and you're happy with it, even if the long-term valuation isn't supported or whatever else. That's what, so that's what I think is, I feel more comfortable 
discussing a long-term valuation um, based on here's how much money they're going to make. Either here's a full discounted cash flow effort or I'm fine with saying, well, here's 15 times free cash flow or earnings a few years from now and then I'm discounting that back. I'm like, I've, I've done that. I I think that's okay. But this to me with, well, we're, we're, we've discussed potentially sharing some ideas later on the line and I might share an idea where I do something similar. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, so I, but so I don't know, I guess, because the argument here, I don't love the valuation. I think that, I think this is all how to construct a compelling growth case. Um, the argument is that there's still going to be a lot of room for adoption down the line. The author is, the author's approach to building in conservatism is to kind of take, take chunks out of the company's position now. For example, dropping their market share to 60% instead of 70%, et cetera. So I think, I think the author is trying to set this up for a growth case. From my perspective, there's a lot missing here. And I don't think that this has achieved the feeling for me that this, this is a super clear growth story and that this is going to be something really that you really want to explore further to try to get it on the ground level for something that could be the next big, you know, loosely tech company winner. I guess is how I would feel. Yeah. So you mentioned that you, that sort of probably ties into whatever you have to say about industry position, which you mentioned that we'd set aside for a second. So let's get into, let's talk about that a little bit. What were you going to mention? Well, so to me, the, the author stresses a couple of times, the underlying software is not that special here. And so their, their market share is all through establishing a relationship with insurance companies that doesn't i guess here's the the trick to me is that and what i'd want to see is a couple things i think that about that position are problematic is that i want to see evidence of what the what is the tam going to be ultimately if this is your play and it has to be kind of a goldilocks scenario it can't be too attractive because for all those you know relationships if I, to use the example of the latest company to pop up in the news as a potential threat, which listeners will know before I say it, if Amazon comes around, they're already partnering with JP Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway on their own healthcare. Like a company like that can figure out how to make relationships with physician networks. That to me doesn't seem, I want to see more evidence of why Teladoc is actually going to be able to hold on to that if somebody wants to come in and try to recreate those networks. Those, that to me doesn't sound I mean, you know, I don't know if I think you you actually have me- medical folks in your family. I have friends in like the dental world, the medical, whatever. I understand that those are fragmented to a lot of a large degree, and so there's some opportunity for consolidating and providing services and being the person who can connect all of them. But I'd want more evidence that Teladoc is really not just the first mover, but the best mover. I. And so that's, I think, the one part of the position that's problematic. And then the other, a revenue multiple to me makes more sense if you're arguing there's an acquisition case, which the author doesn't explicitly make. But I'd want to see who would buy them. Or again, like I said, if I don't see that, I want to see more of the cash flow approach. But then the challenge with buying them and and then 
I guess I have a last point. The challenge with buying them is they're working with all these other health insurance companies. So a health insurer can't really buy them because then it's no longer that sort of neutral platform provide this. It's now an in-house thing at Aetna or UNH or wherever. And so that's, that's kind of knocks out a lot of, lot of your potential acquirer base. I'm, I could be off on that. If somebody else has opinions, email us, but, and then in the health industry in general, and I made an allusion to what's going on politically, not seriously, but where we're trying to cut costs, I can see how this would be a cost cutter, this business. I struggle to see how this would give them a lot of leeway to, they're losing money right now. So they're not yet making up for it on volume, as it were. And so I don't see yet, that's where that Goldilocks issue comes in. If this is so lucrative that if they really do make this land grab, as the author says, and keep 60 to 70% of the market, is there going to be profit at the end of the day that's really worth it? Because the adjusted EBITDA number in the in the bull case is something like it was something like two hundred million dollars. It might be more. I'm pulling it back up, but it wasn't like yeah, two hundred eleven million dollars in 2023. So we're talking about an EV right now of somewhere around EV to EBITDA of you know somewhere around twenty five. If I'm doing that right. Yeah, 25-ish. I think that's generous. So about 25 EV EBITDA 2023 in a relatively aggressive growth scenario. Where, like, what's, what's the next pot of gold? Where does the, where does the rainbow end and what does that look like? And it's, like I said, if it's super attractive, then, you know, Apple is interested in health. I'm just thinking big tech companies. I'm sure there are going to be other companies that are, looking at this and saying, we can get in on this. This is an attractive opportunity. And if your moat is just physician networks, that doesn't seem as strong to me as a better, a better software or a better model or whatever else. So I don't know that th- those are my concerns. I have rambled a little. No, no, that's yeah. I think we, yeah, there's something to that. I wonder if just p- presence on the platform insurance companies not being reputed to be very quick to shift gears. At least that's my perception. Although we've seen them add and drop various drugs and other things from coverage with, I think, relative ease. And that's to the surprise of certain companies that are providing those elements. So maybe being a first mover here is not all that great of an advantage, uh, especially given the types of uh, potential rivals from the larger side of you know, the Amazon's apples of the world. I also think it's interesting that some of their growth is inorganic. They're purchasing other companies. They, in 2018, they purchased a, they purchased a French company, I believe in 2018, and they purchased another sort of uh, telemedicine company recently. And those are meaningful, not overwhelming contributors to the growth story. Um, I think 15 percentage points of growth to the um, Medicine Direct, somewhere around there. So, meanwhile, on I think that my general point here is I think the the story isn't necessarily as clean 
as I would like to just go from a top line perspective and slap a sales multiple or even a 2023 adjusted EBITDA multiple on this company. Uh, I went through the most recent 10Q and I saw some sort of interesting quirks to what's going on. Uh, they, they have ownership or they have this variable interest entity, which is Teladoc Physicians PA, which is an association of physicians who provide services to Teladoc. And so Teladoc has control over this variable interest entity that provides services to it. That's a kind of related party relationship that complicates the story to me, especially when you're talking about sales growth. I'm not saying one way or another that that's a negative here, but it is something that's disclosed prominently in the 10Q and would deserve some additional scrutiny. Beyond that, you have some interesting dynamics going on in terms of capital market transactions. So, you know, in conjunction with the purchase of uh, Medicine Direct or this U.S.-based uh, target company, right around the same time, Teladoc issued shares at about a 13-time sales multiple and current run rate revenue for the target company put the sales multiple for the acquisition at about 6x. So it's interesting to me that you have a little bit of a I wouldn't call it a full roll-up dynamic because there does seem to be organic growth happening at the same time, but there is some aspect of this where the company is issuing stock at a really generous multiple to purchase sort of fringe competitors or smaller competitors at multiples that are much smaller. And I think when you have that kind of capital markets arbitrage dynamic going on, that's not necessarily encouraging to me for the growth story overall. Obviously, that's not the sum total of what's going on. The other thing that caught my eye was uh, some convertible notes issuance and the fact that this company then does carry debt on the balance sheet and its net cash position is actually closer to zero than I would have expected for a company like this. All of which is to say that skating along the surface on and looking at management's presentation of historical performance as well as where the company is going in the future this is such an execution-driven story that I, you know, I think to buy into the type of optimistic growth story that Value Alpha is telling here, I'd want a little bit less hair on what I'm seeing just at a glance from the filings. So those are th- things that sort of caught my eye, and I think I would have to do a lot more work to be convinced that everything is great. And maybe that's kind of a segue into... Value Alpha does give a treatment of a bear thesis that was published on Seeking Alpha by another strong contributor named the Friendly Bear that was accompanied with some sell-off. And certainly since that time, the stock has not had the same sort of meteoric rise as it had happened in the past. So what do you think of the treatment of the bear thesis here in Value Alpha's idea? I think it's not complete is how I would put it. I think there's, I think the author reduced the short selling argument to basically one component, which is what you referred to earlier about YouTube 
referrals to Teladoc. And I think it's, I, you know, and then also mentioned some issues with CFO and COO and certain things there, which I, I, I'm sympathetic to the argument there. there. I noted as I was looking that there were, were some issues with the SEC. It seemed like relatively trivial ones, but around the reporting. So the CFO is nice to have sometimes for that. But the, I think where I, raised an eyebrow here is I I think there's a lot more to the short selling argument. It could be not, it could still be painted with the same brush, but I think as you pointed out, given the hair here, it's probably worth, because I think the, the broader issue that I take from the various concerns that Friendly Bear and anybody else who's raised concerns about Teladoc beyond the valuation, you know, it's things like trying to do mental health over the phone or over the video like is it it leads to some fraught territory and there's some like this is to your point earlier about dystopian world and you know you think of all the externalities out of what seem like trivial usages like facebook like google where it's sort of clear i'm doing this to get information or i'm doing this to share information with my friends or whatever like there's a more clean interaction in this case, there is a, you know, medical, it's not even the data. I'm not getting into that can of worms, but like that's sensitive stuff and you want to really get it right and you want to make sure that everything is buttoned up. And I think that's what the friendly bear has been raising in so many words in their arguments is these concerns over this company's pursuing growth without necessarily building in the fully effective way that you need to in a industry like the healthcare industry. And I don't think that was addressed here. And I don't think it was even sort of given consideration, which again, I, uh, to me, I, I can, I can see the argument that that actually is wrong, but I'd want to, I'd want to see that in the, in the article. And I don't see that. Yeah. I, I think you make an interesting point that the, the specifics of the friendly bear argument, I think, are in hindsight debatable whether the friendly bear was kind of overplaying or overly focused on some scandals that were meaningful, certainly to the people affected, but not potentially business destroying type of issues. You know, um, if we take this as this is a fast growing company, uh, a startup or a company that's trying to capture market share very quickly uh, and pioneering in some ways a pretty novel customer experience, you know, doing things over the phone with physicians. They have that's a risky undertaking and you're going to have some issues arise as you go through it. So maybe some of these things are to be expected in terms of the YouTube stars sort of plugging Teladoc on social media. I think if anything, the the company has weathered that better health storm recently on more sort of you know a celebrity like conan o'brien is advertising better health on his podcast and so i think that whatever was going on there i don't think that it's affected public perception enough that popular and people with large audiences and a fair amount of you know respect among 
the sort of entertainment consuming public have not distanced themselves from better health as a result of that scandal. And therefore the brand has not taken a sufficient hit relative to what friendly bear was going after. So that specific instance probably didn't play out, but the broader issue, which I think is sort of to your point of trust in this business and the ability to execute on this aggressive growth story. I think that there are still some questions about that, and I don't think that those have entirely been put to rest. Well, I I go back to what you just said before that about this being an execution-based story, which I think is really astute and I think is worth thinking about with growth stories because we, I'm going to go back into our archives a little bit. I think about Shopify, for example, which we talked about at nauseum last summer, 2018, when it was in the hundreds and now it's around 400. And that appears to be truly an execution driven story. And it's still a high multiple, but they seem to be hitting their marks. Right. And, and we weren't bullish. No, we were just skeptical. Yeah. Which is disappointing. Well, no, (laughs) we got one wrong. Uh, But no, I think that's actually the exact point is that because you look, the comments on Seeking Alpha are quite bullish and there there are these strong revenue numbers and there is and this is an exciting industry because I think it genuinely can change things and it can help people like those are all good things. I'm also reminded of True Panion, which we covered this year and which we were also, I think, bearish on and which hasn't done that well. So we d- we don't get them all wrong, but the <laughs> it's a little defensive there. <laughs> but it's these story. It's like execution stories can work, and you can be right, and that's fine. And congratulations if you ide- if you can genuinely identify that as an execution story, then you even may have gotten the process right. But it's sometimes there's sometimes this sort of retroactive oh, I knew that was going to happen or I totally nailed it or whatever. Like there's this sort of credit that people will take when it's just a bet that you got right. And that's fine that you got it right. As long as you know what the bet was and you can understand how to replicate it or, or avoid or avoid extrapolating too much or whatever else. But I think that's what's – I think the execution-based story is really interesting. And I think I don't see enough evidence of Teladoc's execution – nor of the, I, I think the, the concerns that short sellers have raised and also just the, the things we've talked about, I would have liked to see those addressed to make the case that, yeah, actually this really is a different game. This is not to use a theme from recent times. This is not the startup we work sort of playbook of revenue, 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 and then we'll figure it out, but that there's something underlying. And I should say they're not burning a ton of cash. They're, relatively close to break even on just a free cash flow metric. That's mainly because they are amortizing a lot, which is I think from their acquisitions and they are paying, they're diluting shares, shareholders quite rapidly through share-based compensation. So those are your two sort of things to watch for. But, you know, I think we've, we've sort of circled around growth stories a lot over our time. And it's just, to me, what you need to, there are going to be execution driven stories that work, but I think to say that you called it and got it right, I think you need a full case for why that's going to be the play. And I think we're a few pieces short of that here is sort of how I feel. 
Yeah. And just on that note, I, I think that the acquisitions, I'm not convinced that you see that disappearing over time. I wonder whether acquisition purchases and therefore amortization and depreciation, there's a lot of goodwill on the balance sheet. And I'm not sure that that's something that you can sort of discount when you're evaluating free cash flow. So I have some concerns there. I also, you know, growth is tapering off on the top line, which it, I mean, you know, eventually has to do, but I would be concerned about that. I also just want to run one thing quickly by you, Daniel, that I thought was caught my eye and it's from the 10 Q. So here we go. You might want to get a pad and paper out, but, um, We completed approximately 908,000 visits, representing $19 million of visit fees for the quarter ended June 30th, 2019, compared to approximately 533,000 visits, representing 14.8 million of visit fees during the quarter ended June 30th, 2018, an increase of 4.2 million or 29%. So... Doubled or like a 40, 45% increase in visits with a 33% increase in visit fees. So yeah, they grew the fees 29%. But if you divide the 19 million in 2019 visit fees by the number of visits, you get an average of about $20 per visit fee and that's lower than the average fee per visit for per 2018. So they're growing the number of visits faster than they're growing the rate of fee revenue. So I I wonder if, you know, I think that they're that's not the main driver of the business necessarily, but I did think it was interesting to see uh, that type of decline in the amount paid per visit, I guess maybe that's greater utilization among subscribers, but right. I don't know. That would that would call into question potentially the margins going forward, which are quite attractive on just on a gross margin basis. They're around 60% or something. And as a gross margins guy, that's something you like to see. But yeah, I think that the things that were great about this article were, look, it's... Uh, the, the market doesn't fully appreciate the way that this business works and doesn't fully appreciate necessarily the nature of the competitive advantage that's available here. And if growth continues in a reasonable trajectory, and there are a lot of tailwinds here, then investors could do quite well. I think that on a full, thorough due diligence basis, there's more complexity to the story than I'm comfortable with. Yeah, I I don't know. I would say from the other side for the short case, you, I'm leery of cases where you have had the friendly bear is not the only short who's come out on seeking alpha. And I'm sure there's others out there. Like I'm a little leery of getting into that without a hard catalyst. So we're not, we're not researching it from that angle. I think what you spotted in terms of, visit average visit fees is really good but again it could be that's one data point we're not yet 
clear how that fits in full picture. But yeah, I think from the long side and, and maybe the last thing I'll just kind of slip in. And again, you could argue this is conservatism, but this is all for a 40% upside play. I think I would, I tend to, you know, if I'm looking for a growth play, I'm looking for about 50, you know, if I'm looking for an opportunity, I'm looking for 50% up margin of safety or whatever. But I think I would, again, I'd want to see like, what is I, the author, I think would argue that there's a lot of conservatism baked in, et cetera, but it does seem like there's a lot left unfilled here to then leave that open. So, uh, for only 40%. So I guess that's where I follow up. I like when we land there. It's a safe landing point for us. There's not enough. Yeah. But There's the beef. That's always a good landing point. Well, let's, we, we'll see where we are a year from now, I guess. We can always... The nice thing about the we'll market is... We'll be totally is, whacked. The we'll market, be poor. We'll be in the poor house. The market will show you where you stand. And even if we don't take positions, I, I should... We mentioned Google briefly. I'm on Google, but... If you don't take positions, then you're still, we're kind of putting our credibility on the line in terms of our analysis. So we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. All right. Teladoc, interesting company. I have a couple of friends who use it and like it. Okay. Uh, not sure about the business, though. Mon clue. But okay. Good stuff. Okay, Mon Frere. Let's leave it there. All right. Take it easy. Bye, Daniel. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We always have fun with the Battleground Stocks, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a chance to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate any love or feedback you have to give us. We're gearing up for the year end with a few special podcasts coming up, so stay tuned. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening. See you next week on Behind the Idea.